0: The, the thing I think we, we often overlook, and I think we're conditioned to this in the modern American church, is we treat the Old Testament and the New Testament as separate instead of what they really are. They're two parts of the narrative that are pointing us back to Jesus Christ. If you go to Revelation, it's telling you about Jesus. If you go to Genesis, it's speaking of Jesus. And everything along the way is just bringing you to where your focus should be, and that is on Jesus. So, uh, today is going to be uh, a message that's more of a combination of preaching and teaching than just teaching. And uh, if... I hope that's okay. <laughs> if it's not, uh, that's between you and the Lord, because I'm just doing what He asked me to do. And part five of our Exodus, we, we started with part one where God started to begin making an emphasis on His name. And He revealed a name that He would be called by in all generations, Yehovah or Yahweh. And we got to look at the two very different staffs, the, the staff that represented the power in the kingdom of God, which was, uh, and still is, uh, a power and protection and provision versus the, the staff of Pharaoh, which was intimidation and slavery and abuse. And, and we got to see the behind the scenes look of the plagues where it wasn't just God pursuing Israel and getting them their freedom. He was pursuing the heart of Pharaoh as well and and revealing behind the scenes that that Pharaoh had a very stubborn heart. And then God allowed that stubbornness to be encouraged so that he could once and for all distinguish himself as a God like no other. And he never took away Pharaoh's right to choose. And that's something I think we lose in the story because we get so focused on the plagues and what's happening that we, we get caught up, I think, like Pharaoh did in the precision of the plagues where God put the plagues on Egypt but spared Israel. He spared the land of Goshen. And you know none more prevalent than the last plague that we talked about, the darkness. For three days, the darkness that fell on Egypt where they couldn't see their hand in front of their face, and Goshen, life went on as normal. You, know, you want to talk about precision and power on display. And, and Pharaoh will still harden his heart. And to the point where he threatens Moses and Aaron, if I see your face again, I'll kill you. And that's where we're going to jump back in is the last conversation between pharaoh and moses and that is god still is merciful enough to give a warning about the next plague that's coming and and that picks up in exodus chapter 11 and the lord said to moses yet one more plague i will bring upon pharaoh and upon egypt okay i don't know how many times i've read that and overlooked the fact that god singled out pharaoh this God king of Egypt, I'll show him. And if you don't like that, well, you don't know our God. Our God is a jealous God who will not let anyone take his glory. If you continue to read in the Old Testament, God says all the gold and all the silver are mine. I share my glory with no one. I like a God like that. The one true God that can back up every claim. He can talk that because he can back it up. And afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they may ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, and in the sight of the people. we we talked about if you paid attention to the narrative all along that god was going to make moses as a god in the eyes of pharaoh and that aaron would be his prophet so moses is a celebrity in egypt and if he starts this trend of letting the people of israel ask the egyptians for gold and silver they're going to pay gold and silver and, and maybe not because they admire them as much as they fear them and they want them out because all these plagues are because of them. And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, At about midnight I'll go out in the midst of Egypt. And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to even the firstborn slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. And there shall be a great cry throughout the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not as a dog shall growl against any of you, the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. Okay, God's already promising that, that you won't even hear a dog growling Goshen because... All of the crying, all of the weeping, all of the sorrow and death is going to be visited on Egypt. I want you to understand that mirrors something we see in the New Testament. All of the grief, all of the sorrow, all of the anguish, all of the weeping and gnashing of teeth are not reserved for God's children. The book of Revelation says God will wipe every tear from their eye. You're not going to see the things that Egypt is going to see. Nothing changes. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What God promised the Hebrew children in Egypt, He's going to bring for us when Jesus returns to set up His kingdom on earth. All of your servants shall come and bow down to me saying, get out and all of the people who follow you. Man, Can you imagine this world when Jesus comes back? The the book of Revelation describes it. They're going to ask the mountains to fall on them. They're going to ask creation itself to try and hide and cover them from the face of God. And in essence, the church that they have persecuted along the way, they're going to beg us to leave. And it won't matter because they're going to bow a knee before our Lord and they're going to confess that he is who he says he is. The people in the Middle East that know this phrase will say, "He is the L all L. He is the Almighty. He is the King of Kings." And everyone here will get to say that in English, Spanish, and whatever other language you speak. <coughs> and after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Can you imagine? You know, the conversation before. And this is a continuation of it. Moses is right there and he's telling Pharaoh everything that's going to happen and he leaves in hot anger. Anyone ever left a conversation like that? Where you stormed out mad? I mean, blazing mad? And, and I wonder if, if Pharaoh's mad or if Moses is mad at Pharaoh or if Moses is a little mad that God is giving Pharaoh a complete warning here of what's about to happen. Because I think sometimes we get caught in the same trap as Moses where we have enough connection to the empire of Egypt that we're a little mad that they're not getting what they deserve without warning. And and it it was an atheist, uh, if you know the magician's pen and teller, I think it was Teller, I don't remember which one of them doesn't talk about it, I think it was Teller, that made this statement. He said, if, if Jesus is everything Christians claim him to be, why aren't they telling everyone? If he's the savior you claim him to be, how much do you hate the world that you're not telling them about Jesus? And, and I look at Moses here and I wonder if he's mad that God is giving Egypt one more warning but but with the outside looking in we get to say you know what a blessing it is that god is willing to give the person who has declared himself the enemy of god one more chance and the lord said to moses pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of egypt and moses and aaron did all of these wonders before pharaoh and the lord hardened which we know is strengthened pharaoh's heart and he did not let the people of israel go out of his hand and now a lot of this i'm going to summarize for the sake of time because it's a lot of scripture but then god speaks to moses and aaron again and he begins to establish the traditions of observing passover for the children of israel and and he tells them that I'm resetting time for you, which I, I overlooked that up until this week studying that when, when God spoke to Moses, he said, yeah, regardless of what calendar you've been living on, this month will be the beginning of months. This is the beginning of something new. This is the beginning of your year. And I want you to understand that at any moment in your life, God can step in and hit the reset button and say, this is when you really begin to live. This is when you really begin to do what I have called you to do. This is when you step into the destiny that I prepared for you. And don't get hung up on the idea of calendars and and days and months and years, because God took, and, and the Hebrew calendar is different than any other calendar in the world. Beginning of the year is different. And they don't have a big New Year's Day celebration. As we read on here, you're not going to like New Year's Day for the Hebrews. Tell all the congregation that on the 10th day of this month, first day of the month is right now, on the 10th day of this month they'll take a lamb according to their father's house and a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb or you don't have the finances for it, he said he and his nearest neighbor will make sure that there's enough. one One of the things that we're going to see over and over as we continue in Exodus is God puts an emphasis on community. And that's something that we have lost in the American church, and we're slowly starting to get it back, is the fact that we, as the body of Christ, are a community, and we take care of each other. And according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, and part of the Sunday school discussion just pops in my mind. I'm thinking, how many lambs are the, are the longs going to need for Caitlin? Because Caitlin, Caitlin can eat like a man, according to her mom. Kate, if you're watching this, I'm sorry. I shouldn't call you out like that. <clears throat> but make your count for the lamb. The lamb should be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you'll keep it until the 14th day of the month. And when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. At twilight, everybody does the same thing. And and they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted with its head, its head with its legs and inner parts. You shall let none of it remain until morning. Everything that remains until the morning shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I've done a lot of barbecuing. I'll just tell you, this gives me the ugh factor. Because you really don't need to leave the head on anything you barbecue. And you sure don't leave the guts in it. And, And how long is it gonna be on that spit roasting before none of it is raw? You're gonna be waiting a while to eat, And a lot of it is going to be very Cajun and that's our term for burnt in our house if somebody burns something oh we're just having Cajun and we have Cajun anything at any given time because even I who am a very good cook make mistakes Uh, don't always take care of the pellet grill like I should and sometimes it becomes a raging inferno and all kinds of fun. Tuesday night, I was on a Zoom call. I turned my camera off because I knew something was wrong with the pellet smoker because I, I opened it up and wasn't doing what it was supposed to. So I shut it off and restarted it, bad move. And I decided, well, it's not gonna get ready in time. So I started a small fire in the fire pit because I'm gonna grill the steak on a fire. Forget working with the, tr- the, the pit boss forget the pit boss is on until it starts really rolling smoke out of it. And when I pop the lid open with a hook that I have, the flame shot up about four feet, and I'm thinking, if only the guys on the Zoom call could see this. You know, I'm on a Zoom call cooking on one fire and fighting another fire with a bottle, a single bottle of water. It was impressive. And and at the same time, I'm listening to every word. A dear friend of mine is preaching on the call. And it was so great, but also just a mess of a night. i can 't imagine some of these people trying to cook the Passover meal the first night and and not fully knowing exactly what's going to happen God says "I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now, rewind back. I told you to hang on to this the first time that God sent Moses was going to send Moses to speak to Pharaoh, one of the things he did was threaten Pharaoh. If you don't release my firstborn to come and worship me, I will kill your firstborn. That make my day statement is about to happen. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute my judgments. For I am the Lord, The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If that's not speaking New Testament things to you, you've missed it. Because the blood of Jesus means the judgment that's coming on this world is not going to strike me. Passover was designed, and if you want to go read all of this, it it takes you through the entire week of Passover in Exodus 12, 14 through 28. It talks about getting all of the leaven out of your house. And if anyone keeps leaven in their house and eats leavened bread that week, they're to be cut off from Israel because they're not committed. And this whole week and Passover is established a memorial day for the future generations of Israel to know what God did for their ancestors and for them. Because for 430 years they've been stuck in Egypt. And God's going to change that. But the other parts of the story that, that I didn't really think about until I, I listened to this rabbi teach it was the fact that they started doing this while they're slaves in Egypt. The first day of the week, they're commanded to throw out all the leavening and not to work except make the food they're gonna eat for that day. You're slaves in Egypt and you just decide you're gonna take the day off? How do you think that went with the empire? This was an outright sign of rebellion. The seventh day of the week is also an outright sign of rebellion. And then it ends with them putting blood on their doorpost, leaving no doubt to anyone from Egypt that walked by, yep, that's one of the people that's rebelling. They're the rebels right there. That's where they are. They're not hiding anymore. And I think part of the struggle that we as Christians face is that, yes, we let Jesus save us through His blood, but we don't treat it as an outright declaration of rebellion against the empire of this world. Where we say proudly, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And He forgave me. And that's what makes me different than this world. Passover, we often see it as as something that, well, they just did it. No, it was a choice. All of the other plagues, God kept His hand away from Israel, but on the tenth plague, He left it to them. It is still your choice. You can choose not to do these things, not to observe these things, not to take me at my word. And if you do, sadly, you'll choose judgment and death. What a a stark warning to us as believers, because what did Jesus say? This will be how they know that you're my disciples. You have love for each other, and you do whatever I command you. What did God command the children of Egypt to do? To observe the Passover, to take a lamb without blemish, and to slaughter it, and to paint blood on the doorpost. To paint it on that narrow doorway, okay? The, the archaeology of Egypt, most of the ancient houses had very narrow doorways. That's going to be a big deal here in a minute when I connect the dots for you. And Moses, it, it continues the narrative. He, he tells the elders exactly what to do at the end of all of that week of getting ready. He commanded them again, reminded them exactly what they're supposed to do. I'm so grateful that the Word of God is not repetitive. The Word of God is intentional. Just like when you teach your children the Word of God, you have to be intentional. When I teach kids in my classroom, I have to be intentional. I have to repeat certain things on purpose. I have to almost hold their hand and walk them through it. Because Moses wanted to make sure they got slaughter the lamb, dip hyssop in the blood, and put it on the doorpost. And I want you to understand when you wipe anything above your head that is liquid, where does it end up? It ends up on the ground. God didn't make him paint it on the ground because he didn't need to. And sometimes I think we 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 get hung up because we want to see, you know, well, there's three. You know, it, it was a sign of the Trinity. And if you want to believe that, I'm not going to argue with you. But I'm telling you right now that when I look at the Exodus and I see that it is a narrow, bloody door that God is asking them to go through. Deliverance through a narrow doorway or a doorway of blood. What's that sound like? Ladies in the room, what's that sound like? And I'm not trying to be crude or disgusting. But to me it sounds like childbirth god is asking the children of israel to prepare themselves because they're dressed to not stay around and wait but when the time comes they're called to walk through a doorway of blood and to walk through it quickly the only other thing that comes quickly is childbirth god is establishing in exodus the pattern of a very simple command that Jesus is going to give later saying, you must be born again. This is how Israel will become the firstborn of God. In the middle of this, Dale, I told you it was coming. In the middle of this, you get the law of the broke-neck donkey. And, and it, you can read all of this if you want. I'll break it down for you. Uh, the part of the remembrance of Passover is that they take certain passages of Scripture and they put them in these little black boxes and they wear them as a headband or they wear them on their arm or they wear them on their wrist. And one of the laws that they always write in those boxes is the law of the broke neck donkey. And the law of the broke-necked donkey is to remind them that God redeems, the first, redeems His firstborn. And they're called to remember to redeem the firstborn. In the firstborn of their flocks, they're called to sacrifice the firstborn animals. The firstborn of their children, they're called to redeem and to offer them spiritually back to God. But if it's a donkey, because the donkey is stubborn the donkey is unclean and the donkey represents burden if it's a firstborn donkey in your flock you're called to either redeem it with a lamb showing that there's hope for the most stubborn unclean and burdensome around us or if it will if you don't have a lamb to redeem it with and you don't choose to redeem it you're to break its neck and leave it for dead God makes it very plain and teachable that if you're not going to choose redemption, if you're not going to choose to become a firstborn, a son, or a daughter of God, that in all eternity you're going to be that broke-neck donkey that's unredeemable by choice. The law of the broke-neck donkey, you'll never forget it. The next thing is, in the story of the Exodus, we're going to see that they're led by God. Because after the Passover, and I don't have to spend a lot of time telling you how everything in Egypt died. All of the firstborn, firstborn cattle, the firstborn son, firstborn, all the firstborns of Egypt died. And I used to say, if you're a firstborn in your family, raise your hand because it would show you how quickly the room would empty out. And, and how heartbreaking that would be. And, and Pharaoh calls him in the middle of the night. If you read the Word of God, he calls Moses and Aaron in in the middle of the night because he doesn't want a big public display that he's been humbled. Because he is the God King after all. And he says, get out. Take take everything you said you wanted to take. Take your people, take your livestock, and just go. I don't care where you go, but get out of Egypt. And they began to leave. And God begins to lead them. And we all know this because we, we heard it in Sunday school. He led them as a cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. And... And the reason it's a pillar of fire by night, it's not a nightlight. God kept them moving at night. Which I never really picked up on until I went back and read it. That they might travel by day and night. You're moving by day and night. Almost a million people. There's over 600,000 men. They didn't number women and children. All these people are moving, so they're not hard to find in the desert. And when they first leave, the the green arrow is where they start, if you can see. This is a modern day topographical map here. So I didn't put all the names on there because a lot of the names are places that have been renamed during history, and we don't have a great accuracy with it, but we do get the direction they're going. And does this look like people that know where they're going? Because right where they start out, that's a narrow strip of water called the Reed Sea. It's a marshland. It wouldn't have been comfortable to move across, but they could have crossed it very easily. And God continued to lead them down through the desert. Now, if Pharaoh's got scouts watching them, which he does it's going to look like they're out there wandering around lost. And, and what we say about Pharaoh's heart, it's very, very stubborn and very prideful. Do you think he's just going to let them go? Okay, I want you to understand that the, the ruler of this world, the ruler of the empire of this world, the devil is just like Pharaoh. He's very stubborn and he will not let you go easy. He will chase you. He will chase after you and he will try and tempt you in areas that your flesh makes you weak. And they get down here to the Red Sea and look how wide that body of water is. Man. And I'm not going to read all that because I don't want to mess up all the names here. But um, Pharaoh recognizes this and he says, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And Pharaoh makes up his mind he's going to go after them. The Egyptians pursued them, and all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army overtook them and camped at the sea, which was the last place on the map that we have. And Pharaoh drew near, as Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you would have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Were there not enough graves in Egypt for them to bury us? If they wanted to kill us, at least we'd have graves where people could find us. What have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Okay, I just told you these people got to... Participate in a rebirth, as you will. How many people accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior only to stumble and fall away again? Only to lose faith and to walk away from what they know to be true. A lot of them look at living for Jesus as a list of things they can't do and they lose sight of the freedom that they have. And they long for Egypt and the graves of Egypt. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Just stand here. Don't be afraid. Stand here. And watch the salvation of the Lord, for He will work for you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. All you have to do is be silent. I really want to throw my Mr. T quote out right there because Moses would have had a lot more fun being Mr. T. But Charlton Heston played Moses, and he speaks King James, so it's not as fun. We watched that clip this morning. I can't show it just because of all the inaccuracies of it. I, I talked my kids through it. I was like, this is not what the Bible says at all. But anyway, Hollywood, leave it to them. Even when they do good, evil's there with them. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Why are you talking to me, Moses? I already told you what to do. And I'm with Moses. I'm forgetful. And especially under stress, sometimes I forget. But God already promised Moses that He would do wonders through Moses if He would just be obedient and He would carry the staff that represented the power of God. I think God had to turn the light bulb back on for him and say, lift up your staff. You know, in and, and J.J. speak, it'd be, hey dummy, I gave you the staff. Lift it up. I gave you. And, and I think God still does that to me. He says, I gave you my Word. Elevate its position in, my, in your life and watch me do things. Watch me do wonders that you can't begin to imagine. Moses lifts up his staff, and we get to see God work. Okay, the angel of God, in simultaneous fashion is how I picture this. Not simultaneous like the movie has it, because the movie is way off. Anyway, uh, the angel of the Lord, or the presence of God, that was the cloud and the pillar of fire went from leading the children of Israel to standing behind them, cutting off the Egyptians. And this is something I never picked up on, and I want you to see it today. That the the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So what do you think is happening on the on the side of the children of Israel. That pillar of fire and that light that gave them light to see what was going on. And what's on the other side of it? Darkness. In the movie, they just put fire between them and, oh, you can't go through fire. You can't go through darkness. We're not talking just a little darkness. The same darkness that was mentioned in the plague that blacked out the stars, they couldn't navigate, blacked out their hand in front of their face. There's just terror of darkness in front of them. If you're not scared of the dark, you just haven't been in a dark enough room yet. I'll just tell you that. Until you've been in pitch dark a while, you can say you're not afraid of the dark. Get in pitch dark where you can't see anything for a while and see how long it takes you to break. Because you'll be afraid. And these guys had spent three days in it. You don't think they were having PTSD? Oh, there's darkness. We cannot chase them. Just stay here. Try and keep the horses calm. And on the other side of that, what the children of Israel are seeing is Moses holding up the staff that represents the presence and the power of God. And then they feel a wind come out of the east and begin to peel back the water. The wind coming out of the east, I could spend a long time taking you back to different points of Scripture, but recognize how many times God's trying to push the children of Israel back west to be with Him. That's my go west young man joke that I ran through Genesis. Every time they went east, bad things happened, and now God's bringing wind from the east to the west and making a way. God set them apart. He set them apart. His presence is what set them apart from Egypt. The movie gets it wrong, they make it happen instantaneously. It happens overnight. The Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind all night. And what's really interesting, the translators call it a strong east wind. That is not what the Hebrew says at all. It says, and the Ruach of God pushed the waters back. The same Ruach, the breath of God from Genesis that hovered on the face of the water. The Ruach, the spirit breath of God pushed the waters back. and the children of israel went over on the midst of the sea on dry ground waters being a wall to them on the right and the left and the the, the old rabbis teach that this is a symbol of creation happening again and they tie it back to god chose people to come through the flood He's once again choosing people to come through a flood. You take take that for what it's worth. I'll tell you how I see it as a Christian. God set them walking a narrow path. And and it gets better. They were invited to walk that narrow path. And the Egyptians pursued and went in after them. The water's still open. And they're pursuing them into the midst of the sea, all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord, the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw them into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, so they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. They start pursuing, even in the darkness. Anybody ever try running in the dark? It's not a good plan. <laughs> uh, I won't tell stories on too many people, but I know a, a guy that had a red mark across his neck for weeks after running into a clothesline in the dark. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians. So Moses stretched his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the hosts of Pharaoh that followed them on the sea, and none remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea and the waters being a wall to them on their right and on their left. Okay, reading this and reading it in the Hebrew... This is a at the same time. The Hebrews had a head start. The Egyptians follow them in, and then God's closing it in on them while the, while the Hebrews are still walking. It's not they're standing on dry ground watching this happen. It's happening as they're walking through. Whew. Now there was a certain man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. The New Testament tie-in. Here it is. This man came to Jesus by night and said, Rabbi, how do, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. and you hear it sound, but you, do not, but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, yet you do not understand these things? When I read that, I thought, Why would Jesus say that to him? And then I reread Exodus. And looked at it as Israel being born again. And they missed it. They missed it. They missed the identity that God had given them back when they were delivered from Egypt. And Jesus' teaching, he taught in Matthew 7, "Enter through the narrow gate. I'll never look at the narrow gate the same. I always put it with the temple and Jesus could have very easily been talking about the temple, but Jesus is also talking to Jews. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and few be that find it. Any better picture of a narrow road leading to life than the crossing of the Red Sea? The other thing about it is, if the Red Sea represents the world that we're in, God has made a way for us to get through it without being part of it. Without being consumed by it. Jesus prayed this in John 17, I have given them Your Word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify or set them apart in your truth. Your word is truth as you have sent me into the world. So have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be set apart in truth. Do you know that you're born again? Do you know that? Do you recognize because you're born again, you're set apart? You're set apart, and the difference between you and the, this world is the presence of God in your life. And are you walking the narrow path that is in this world, but it's not of this world? There's times I wonder how many times they looked to their right or to their left and saw the water. How many times do we look to our right and to our left and see the water instead of looking ahead and chasing after the presence of God? Yeah, there's times I I laugh thinking they could have reached in and noodled a fish like a true oaky. But... We're called to walk a path that's not always clear. Sometimes we just have enough of the light of God's presence to see the next step. That that it feels like at any moment the whole world's going to cave in on the path that we're walking. And God made promises for that. He said it was going to be narrow. It wasn't always going to be easy to see or to find. But He prophesied in... In the Old Testament, and he said, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. They won't overtake you. They won't sweep you away. That completely changed that passage of Scripture when I look at it through the eyes of people who cross the Red Sea. So how are you doing on your exodus? Because the exodus is a journey from a life of slavery to the promised land we're all on the exodus how's your walk